Stall It with Darren and Joe, a Go Loud original podcast, proudly sponsored by Five Lamps. The beer from Ah Here. Five Lamps is the locally brewed, great tasting beer. Try a local in your local. Get the facts, be drink aware. Visit drinkaware.ie. Well, yeah, just stall it, look. I'd like to come and stall it. I'm not really in the mood. Well, come on and bleed and stall it. Yeah, house hatcher. I'm not a house hatcher. We'll stall it for the crack. We're gonna have a laugh. Connors are taught to, taught fault your row to stall it with Darren and Joe. That was Irish, I'll scare you. Tom, I got a smaller school. Come on. Thank you, I am a school bike. I think it's just thank you, school bike. This is episode 93. Stala is proudly sponsored. It's proudly sponsored by the Five Lamps, Joe. The beer from our hair. The beer from our hair. And i tell you one thing. I had a can of it the other day. It was nice. And I haven't looked back. There's no change in your mind. Once you go Five Lamps, you'll never go anywhere else. Anywhere else. You'll just stick around at the Five Lamps. And <laughs> the t- Yeah, right under it. <laughs> I was actually under the Five Lamps the other day. I just wanted to get a feel for five lamps. Yeah. So I was standing under it and then I said, do you know what I'll do? I'll visit drinkaware.ie right now, here where I am, like, so yeah. I can know a bit more about responsible drinking. And it worked, because I'm really responsible nowadays. That's good to hear. On with the show. Let's go. How are you doing? Hey, 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 hello. Did you ever go fishing? Mm-hmm. I've never gone fishing in my entire life. Have you not? Never. I wouldn't even know how to cast the rod. Is that what it's called? Casting a rod? I think it's called rodding it. Rod that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I went fishing and I caught an octopus before. Which, where was that? Where'd you go fishing? Just in the Tolga. You didn't. What are you messing? You never caught I actually, ne- I went fishing, I went maybe like two years ago with a friend who said he was an experienced fisher. And we got there and we were fishing for fucking ages, like just standing there for like hours and nothing was catching on. And the odd time you get a bite, like, and you'd reel it in, it'd just be like a big clunk of seaweed. This is an experienced fisher, by the way. Um, fisher, a fisher. Uh. <laughs> but the ends that you got, like, the ends were actually for fly fishing. He was like, oh, I'm getting the wrong ones. And like, what, six hours later, you got the wrong ones? You can fish like, for fly. flies. It's, there's a thing called fly fishing, isn't it? Where it's like a reflective kind of end on it that just catches, look like flies. That's amazing. And then you go home and have fly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything more boring than fishing. fishing just standing at the edge of a cold cliff somewhere or good on a boat summer. good in the summer what it's just sitting there you're waiting to catch a fish yeah it's a sport that's another thing you, you see on Sky in. Sports it does be on for hours fishing Olympics that's not a sport like that's impossible there's no skill involved in it a fish bites or it doesn't bite yeah, but it's a technique I'm using to reel the fish in. Say, so, come on, you're right, bring it so, hey, If there's no back. skill involved, how come the people who fish in these top-tier fishing events catch much bigger fish much more frequently than your average there Joe is, Soap out there fishing? There is a skill involved because... Of course there's a skill involved. It's no if, skill involved. If I, I gave you a fishing rod, do you think you'll be able to catch a fish? No, but if you taught me, teach a man how to fish. So what would they teach you? The like, skill? I don't know how to throw the hook into the water. You're holding it on the, the rail. When you throw it like that, you let your finger go and then the weight of the bottom of it like will stretch the wire. The line. The line. The washing line. <laughs> I was trying to do it and I was like that whoosh, and there's just all fucking clothes on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think there's any skill. And then there's games as well. There's video games as well. You can like bass fishing 2000. Yeah. But you will readily admit you know nothing about fishing. But you have decided that there is no skill to it despite knowing nothing about what's involved in it. It's going to be a lot of fishers I out don't, there that listen that's to this. Very to I've never done it. I don't have any experience in it. But I think it's throwing a line with bait at the end into the water, essentially. It could just be a, a bad day and there's just no fish where you throw the line in. Or How can you be good? Or all just aware that you're trying to catch them and they're just like, fuck that. Yeah, they're just not hungry. Say, so I'm not in the air where getting caught. My bollocks. I'm yeah. going back into a fucking aquarium in someone's gaff. <laughs> did you, so did you ever catch a fish? When you went out last year, did you catch a fish? No. So you sat no, there. Not one person caught a fish because the ends he got for the fishing rod were fly fishing. Usually it's just a hook with a fucking worm on the end of it. Yeah. For catching like a fish. So we're just standing there with no bait on it. With just a steel 
hook hoping that little fish bites the steel oh that looks lovely kiss yeah. <laughs> a bit look at that kiss a bit of that ah my fucking cheek <laughs> yeah cheek you it's a sport I have no desire to get to know and I use the term sport very loosely there but I have no desire to learn how to fish it's up to him <laughs> he doesn't want to he doesn't no, want to no that's it. fine it's just the arrogance of I know nothing about it but I know there's nothing to know about it yeah it's a stick and a wire you're thrown into the water <laughs> and catching a stupid fish that like there's no skill involved. I hope one of our listeners is a dedicated fisher. A fisher them. Fisher them. <laughs> and sends fisher man, fisher woman, or fisher them. Let us know <laughs> if you have one of them. Yeah, and let us know what you think of what Joe's take on your hobby. Yeah, well, I'd be curious to learn you, if there is more anything, to know. Do you do anything that involves skill? Fucking yeah. Like what? Ornament. Yeah, I'm good at all. The, the world champion at ironing. That's a sport. But if someone had never ironed, they just say, what? You just put it on top of the clothes. Oh, there's it. so much more to it. Like, ah, you don't want to oh, crease, oh, the, no, crease uh, the other side. But how, ah, and how <laughs> did you learn that that was the case? I don't want to go down a rabbit hole that I'm good at oh. ironing. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. But <laughs> did you have to iron a couple of shirts before you realise the difference between a good iron and a bad iron? You want one of them big jet irons. Yeah, but you all do the same thing. Like, genuinely, I know you could technically fish with a stick and a bit of twine and a worm, but you could also fish with one of these big fancy two grand fishing rods, like football boots. What, them predators? Are predators still a thing? Yeah, unfortunately. So, are they expensive? They're probably the best boots, Eddie. What kind of predators are you talking about? What's the most expensive football boot? I remember the ones years ago where it was like, 90 on the side of it in yeah. the circles remember them yeah yeah they, uh, Nike yeah if I feel like they everyone in my school had them indoor football boots like gold and cream ones and yeah. red and black and I got a pair as well and like they make it a better football turn you into Ronaldo real quick <laughs> if you're wearing just your normal runners you're just shite at football and then you put on a pair of Ronaldo's you're like flying around the wing I went to O'Connell's school and we used to play football on our break but we didn't play with a football we used to play with a tennis ball and to be, do you remember the big barrels of bins, big blue barrels? Yeah. They'd be the goalposts. But in O'Connell's, you weren't allowed to wear runners. You had to wear shoes. So we had them kickers. I don't know if you remember oh, kickers. Yeah, yeah. They had no laces or anything on them. Got them in Clarks. Yeah. <laughs> there was just like leather across the top, but the top of your foot was just flat. So yeah. when you connected with that tennis ball, ooh, <laughs> there was no stopping it. If you were in goal, you'd be like, fuck that. <laughs> you were in school, like. Anything that could be kicked around was considered a football. Yeah, crumpled like, up piece of paper. Yeah, a bottle of water. <laughs> so you got a football. <laughs> <laughs> On the head. Oh no. Someone's no. match book. Got a football. Here's a football. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a football. Give us a pass, give us a pass, give us a pass. Look, can I get my match book back please? I used to hate when you play PE and the teacher would be like, right, okay, we're going to play basketball now. And everyone would be like, no, we want to fucking kick a ball. Like, we want to play football. So you'd have a basketball. And do you ever give a basketball a kick? Oh, boom. Break your ankle. Yeah. When you got the crabs, that was a bad week. The week after you got the clap. Yeah, I keep getting <laughs> bad doses of it. <laughs> we're going to Disneyland, but Moira wants us all to wear matching shorts, T-shirts. Which I find incredibly embarrassing. Oh, I'm up for that. I'm gonna do it. Maybe if I had kids, like it'd seem more like acceptable to do that. I don't think it's embarrassing. Like you're gonna have a fanny pack as well. Like, <laughs> well that's just practical. <laughs> what t-shirts is she gonna get? No, so order them before you go, or get, just get them there for like a hundred dollars a t-shirt. She kept going around like. Euro. She was like, "Will you wear? Will you wear matching ones?" I'm like, "I'm not wearing a matching ones. Will you wear matching? No, I'm not gonna wear. I joke. Come on, do it for the kids and stuff." I'm like, "Right, okay, I'll wear matching ones." Then the next day. She's saying, Joe, will you come in and pick out matching t-shirts online? And I'm like, I'm not picking out, like, you literally asked me to pick the gun you want to shoot myself with. And then she convinced me to go in and have a look at all of the t-shirts, the options of t-shirts. And she, I swear to God, she had about 50 tabs open with t-shirts that were all matching. Do you know what I mean? So I had to pick out a t-shirt and I'm going to be walking around in public wearing matching t-shirts. For the whole time you're there. With me, yeah. Actually, like, we're going to be there for three days. And we're going to have different matching t-shirts for the three different days. For fuck's sake. Kill me now. You should have just Please don't let me walk out like, All right, one of the days I'll do it. But the rest, I'm wearing me there to be jacket. Like, I found this out this morning. I was like, get your matching t-shirts and that's what we're wearing. At least then all the photographs will just look like it's one day. Now it's going to look like a big thing that every day is different. And we're that family 
<laughs> you are that family now. You are that family. That's what I'm fucking hate about myself. Everyone's going to be walking by saying, they're that family. <laughs> oh. And the fact that you actually hate it is even worse. Like I know. Do you know what it's like? Do you ever see a dog wearing an outfit that it doesn't want to wear, but it doesn't have hands, so it can't yeah, take dogs it off? Dogs wearing outfits. I, th- I don't think any dog wants to wear an outfit. And it's just like, Lord, take me now. <laughs> Hope you don't feel like that when you're doing that over there. I will. But it'll be fine. It'll be grand. But it's just, it is still a little bit embarrassing. Oh, it's like somebody. It's all going to be like Mickey Mouse and yeah. I'm Mickey, I'm Minnie, I'm yeah. baby Mickey, I'm baby Minnie. I'm always like, how about we, we wear like the Incredibles t-shirts and I, you're Mr. Incredible and I'm Mrs. Incredible. And I'm like, the kids have never even seen the Incredibles. I'd cancel the whole trip if she said that to me. I'd say I'm going to Spain. I'll see you later. <laughs> But then I'm like, if they're all matching and then I don't have the t-shirt, then I just look like a dickhead. So it's a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Mm. It's a cock in the arse from either direction, as Spartacus once said. <laughs> a cock in the arse from either direction. <laughs> Another thing that she had me doing was picking out pillows. I've done the same. This morning? No, last week. And how did you find it? I must have went to every fucking carpet shop in Dublin. <laughs> because for some reason carpet shops sell pillows now. <laughs> and I ended up just going to fucking Usk. Oh, you were saying, yeah, I yeah. Was that yeah. Usk. Usk. Scandinavian, isn't it? Oh, they know how to do designs, they mm. know how to design stuff. Don't go to uh, IKEA. Come to us at Usk. Come to us, okay? Yeah, but the only thing I tell you what you don't do fucking hot dogs and meatballs. Come back to me then when you start doing that. Come back to me when you can go and buy a set of wardrobes and a fucking hot dog and a few meatballs. Thank you. <laughs> I love that Ikea has like a shopping centre at the end. I know. A restaurant and you can do a little bit of shopping. You're going and buying a fucking wardrobe, chest of drawers. Then you get to the end and there's like packets of fucking weird crisps and like milk rakes of fucking dime bars. (laughs) Yeah, what's that all about? Why are they selling dime bars? Maybe the fella that invented dime bars invented Ikea. Maybe he was just a big fan of dime bars. Mm. Or are they dime? Dime bars. Are they dime, are they? I don't know, I'm not too sure. But I was trying to pick out pillows on the internet this morning. For the bed, like? For the for the sitting, the sofa. Yeah, I got loads of them. Throw oh. pillows. Huh? Throw pillows. Oh, you throw them? You just throw them on, you know, you just throw them on the ground because you never fucking use them. It's ridiculous. Just for fucking decoration. Pillows are great on sofas. And all the squares, they have them, like, if you karate chop the top of a pillow and then it just kind of turns up either side... The pillows look like a fucking fortune cookie. Oh, yeah. And they're yeah. all the exact same when you're looking at them online. And my brain, they all look the exact same. And Maura has, again, about 50 different tabs open showing me the ones that she likes. And she's like, which one do you like the most? And then that's the one that we get. I'm like, just pick whichever one you want. Because whenever I pick one, she's like, oh, I don't know about that. What about this one? I'm like, well, why did you even open that as an option? And they all just look peach, peach and champagne. With a slight Wouldn't difference. I, they all look the fucking same to me. Just stick a fortune cookie on the chair and it wouldn't have a difference. We have a pillow in the middle of the sofa and it's like a long one. But um, Amy chops it into it the, at the position of a fortune cookie. Like, what is that? I don't know. She'd be doing fucking swans and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Gaff would be like a showroom. Do you think of this crocodile? <laughs> Origami on the bleeding table. We have pillows on our bed as well. Yeah, most people do. do. <laughs> Most people have pillows no, on the bed. We have pillows, like bed pillows, and then we have cushions <laughs> on top of the pillows, like on the front of them. Like, yeah. Actually, I only got rid of two the other day. They were two garden cushions on the bed. <laughs> now that you'd put on a fucking swing, like <laughs> out the back. Yeah. I was like, we need to start getting rid of this. Like, it's hard to make the bed then. And then, like, every time you get I'll into you bed, you're thing. throwing cushions off the, off the bleeding. Well, get rid of them bleeding cushions. I make the bed like a fucking cleaner in a hotel. Do you? Pull it up to the top, fold it over, and then tuck it in, then tuck it all around, like, and then pull it apart again and say, What am I fucking doing? Yeah, crumple her up. And then just make it messy again. Just say, oh, Couldn't do that. What have I become? I got up early this morning, like 7 a.m. Is that early? Yeah. For me, anyway. And uh, Amy was in work at half nine, so Amy just got up with me, and before I left, the gaff was spotless. Like, she just wants to clean it, like. Is that good or it's stressful? Ama- it's amazing. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. But do you feel like nervous that you're making a mess if you make a cup of tea or something? No, it's not like that bad. No. But um, she brought the cleaner out in me. Did she? I'm fucking lighting candles and all. 
We have somebody that comes and cleans the house every two weeks. What? What? <laughs> every two weeks, someone comes to your house and cleans it. Just a step. We, we can't stay on top of it. We can't do it. Fucking few, Bob. We tried. <laughs> it's necessary. Gets a few, it's... Bob, and he has cleaners in the gaff and cooler. See, having kids is like you're cleaning in front of you and they're making a mess behind you. And it's just you can never stay on top of it. And that's why, like, every two weeks, it's kind of like getting a haircut. Like, I don't get haircuts. I haven't got my haircut in about two months. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Takes a while to go back. No, it's, that's long. Look at that. Fucking short enough, that. Fucking long enough. You told me you got that done yesterday, I'd believe you. Would you? Yeah. Maybe it's just ground well. No, I, I haven't gotten it done in a while. I'm getting a fed tomorrow. When it starts coming out the hole at the back of me hat, they'll have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to let me hear it grow. Amy Bird, just let me hear it grow for a year and see how it looks. Go ahead, if, you, if that's what you want to do. The army shop, point slingshots, pen noise, everything you want to see is. Owen. Yes. I heard you have something for us today. I do. Better be good. A few weeks ago, I said to you, did you ever hear the Unabomber? And you said no. I said, would you like to know more about the Unabomber? And he said yes. That was weeks ago. <laughs> Do you have that now? No, he doesn't want to know. No, no, I still, I still want to know. Good. I'm glad you want to know. So you, you've done a deep dive? You're, yeah, you're going to sit there and listen now. Questions at the end. Did you do a deep dive? What about it? Yeah. You ready? Oh, yeah. And ABC News brief. Now from Washington, Sheila Cast. Good evening. The FBI is offering a million dollar reward for information about a mail bomb that's killed a New Jersey advertising executive. Agents blame a serial bomber who's killed two people and wounded 23, and who has eluded investigators for 16 years. Beginning in 1978, a mysterious series of bombings across the country. The bomb on the Yale campus today blew up in the computer sciences building. Small bomb exploded in a mail pouch in the cargo hold. It was all there today, all 35,000 words of the Unabomber's message to America. But we knew that this individual was a criminal mastermind. We knew he was smarter than most other criminals we were going up against. Are you going to ask us what we think the Unabomber is? Yeah, let's start there. I think he's a guy who posted bombs to radio stations and they blew up. Mm, yeah, not quite. Yeah, yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah, that's my that's the extent of my knowledge. Oh, I don't know. like some fellow that makes bombs and he goes to university. Yeah. Does he post bombs to universities? He does. Oh, he did. Okay, there you go. Okay, is it a uni bomber or una? We'll get there. Uni. Ooh. Uni bomb. Oh, so many questions. Uniform bomber. I think he is a. Is he a teacher in a college? Well, not anymore. But was he? Yeah. And that's why he's like gets the prefix uni, like no. No, that's it's kind of tied into it, but that's not why he was called that. We'll begin. April 3rd, 1996. What a date. Yeah. April, when? Sorry, tell it again. April 3rd, 1996. <laughs> you had to lose me literally. Oh, <laughs> sort Sorry. Yeah. April 3rd, 19... 1996. We're going to be here all day. If okay. <laughs> he wasn't born then, was he? No. All right, hell. right, right. Okay. Let so me, what's, Let me get to the end of the first sentence. So, sorry, we're starting in the middle. Say the date again. <laughs> April 4th, 1996. April 3rd. April 3rd, 1996. Why does that ring a bell? We'll find out. So, our story begins in the middle of nowhere. Very, very rural Montana. Way up in the mountains. Donna, Montana. There are two FBI agents and one US Forest Service police officer. And they walk up to the door of a 12 foot by 10 foot wooden cabin. So this is a wooden cabin someone has built by hand in the middle of nowhere. It's a shed. Pretty much. So it's a... Cold, frosty day. Is that yet? He's in the story. The reason they're at that door is because they think behind that door is the person who has conducted for two decades a bombing campaign across the United States that has completely baffled an FBI team of 150 agents for about 15 years. They've been trying to figure it out. Our top story, a nationwide manhunt underway. FBI is looking for a serial bomber behind this incident and 14 others like it since 1978. The FBI is offering a $1 million reward for information on the bombing. 
and they finally got the break and shown up at this cabin and said, we think the person behind this door is the Unabomber. So the Unabomber have been targeting a very strange range of targets. Airlines, university professors, electronic stores, geneticists, a group of people that at first they thought was completely random. So since 1978, they've been searching for this person without pretty much any clue. Even finding the bombs and analysing the bombs. Did they not go off? They did. Oh, shit. But this person was able to hide their tracks incredibly well. Like, so all these bombs were gone off and they just couldn't find... They open. hadn't got the first clue where they were coming from, who was making them, why they were sending them to who they were sending them to. So before we move on with what they found that day, go back to the first one, 1978, in the car park of the University of Chicago, someone finds... The University of where? Chicago. 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 <laughs> Chicago. When I was doing the research for this, I knew that I had to say Chicago and Joe would make a point of having me re-say it. <laughs> it's in the notes. <laughs> it's in the notes, yeah. So the parcel was in the car park of the university. Someone picks it up. The address, it was too, made no sense. It has a return address of a professor at a different university, Northwestern University. So they send it back there. Gets to the other university. Security guard brings it in to this professor. Security guard's name was Terry Maker. And they put it down the, and the professor says, well, I didn't send that. And that's not my handwriting. Somebody in, I'm pretty sure it was the staff room, somebody makes a joke. Ah, might be a bomb. It was a bomb. They open it. Security guard gets injured, but nobody gets killed. Nobody's really seriously injured. And nothing else happens then. People thought it was possibly a firecracker. They don't really know. Like it's it's local police oh, show. Up. Then about a year later, again at Northwestern University, a pipe bomb was left in a room on the campus and it exploded when a student picked it up. Again, though, it didn't really get a whole lot of attention. Small explosive device. I mean, it injured the person who picked it up, but didn't kill them. What, what was the reason? What was this? What was the time difference in between the first and the second? A year later. So the first okay. one was May 1978. Second one is, I think, April 79. Okay. So at this point, these two have very much flown under the radar. But then in November of 79, a bomb explodes on American Airlines Flight 444, which Shit. is going from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Now, bomb on an airplane, that's a big deal. Mm. They were able to make an emergency landing, so nobody was killed. People were treated for smoke inhalation, but, you know, it wasn't the disaster it could have been. So at this point, the FBI get involved. And the only clue they can pick up is that the package that the bomb was in was sent from Chicago. So they go back to the police there and say, is there anything like this in the last couple of years? So they look through all the files, anything to do with an explosive device. And they came back to the force too, was it? The FBI agent who sees the files on these two at the university says, hang on, these bombs look quite similar. The first bombs were made with things like matchsticks and rubber bands. And they were in hand carved wooden boxes. Matchsticks and rubber bands? Yeah. What's this, MacGyver? Yeah, <laughs> batteries, things like this. Jesus. Totally homemade. The airline one, so it was a lot more sophisticated than the first two, mm. but they were able to say, these three are made by the same person. Universities, airlines, it became Unabomb. So, okay. I thought it was something to do with college. But it was, university. The next bomb then is in 1980. The president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, gets a bomb sent to his home. Then in 81, there's a bomb found in a classroom at the University of Utah. 82, uh, there's another one sent to a university in Nashville. Then there's another sent to University of California at Berkeley to a professor of engineering and computer science. Then nothing happens for a couple of years. In 85, then they start again. As they're analyzing the bombs, they would notice things like he would use batteries in the bombs. But the other way on a battery would have like a label. A plastic kind of skin. The wrapping, like, yeah. Yeah. That was always taken off. So they couldn't tell where the battery was from. The glue that was used to hold the bombs together, they would send it away to a lab in the hope that they might figure out what brand of glue it was. And it might be something to go on. It was homemade glue made from deer hooves. What the fuck? Yeah. Then later on, they started finding in the, the remains of the bombs metal plates with the letters FC hammered into them. And they had been put in a part of the bomb that the bomber knew would not be destroyed. 
So the bomber or bombers wanted this to be found. Just the letter FC. And they're going, what does FC stand for? Football club. What's FC stand for? Why have they got, why are they targeting this random collection of people? Absolutely none of it was making sense. And this is about 10 bombs in? Uh, yeah, we're about seven or eight bombs in at this point now. In 1985, there was four bombs. Uh, another university. One sent, but disarmed, but sent the Boeing company in Washington. So Boeing, who build the planes. What's his obsession with fucking planes and the university? And That's what they were wondering. Okay. What's going That's on? That's what here? I'm wondering. <laughs> in You're late... like an FBI agent. <laughs> Why don't I do that? What's going on here? What have I been doing in my life? In late 1985, December 11th, a bomb killed a man called Hugh Scrutton. He was the owner of a computer shop in Sacramento. He was the first person the Unabomber killed. I can't believe that nobody was killed up to this point. How long since he started to the first person being killed? Seven years. Seven years? Yeah. Fucking amateur. Amateur? <laughs> This is amateur, is right. In 1987, then, they get the first thing that's almost like a clue. He left a calling card. There was a bomb left outside, again, a computer shop, this time in Salt Lake City in Utah. But a witness saw a man with a hoodie pulled up and aviator sunglasses. Oh, I think I know this picture. I know this image. That was the only thing they had to go on for a very long time. After he is seen, nobody hears from him. There's no bombs for six years. Then in 93, the New York Times get a letter from someone saying they are this FC person who says they're going to start the terror campaign again. That could be anyone. That could, it should, anyone could be just saying that. After six years, it could be like a, a copycat killer. Why is he calling himself FC? Hardly his fucking initials. He FC. wants to play with them. He's like a, a, a cat with a mouse. Maybe he felt bad after killing the person. When someone actually died, he probably had a little bit of remorse. Mm. Although he is just making bombs and sending them places. Like, I don't think he cares if he kills someone. So, at this point, they're going, maybe it's like a disgruntled student. The airline thing, maybe it's a disgruntled airline mechanic. They were looking at Dungeons and Dragons groups as well. They did somewhere between six and eight profiles of the Unabomber over the years. If you were to kind of have a Venn diagram cross of all the people who might fit into these six ray profiles, you'd essentially have every white male in the United States <laughs> under the age of, I think, 60. Well, that narrows it down. Like they should have gotten. They hadn't a breeze what yeah. was going on. Other ways he'd hide himself, he'd buy the stamps from machines instead of going to the post office. Obviously, he didn't want to be seen at the post office, but he knew the person placing the stamps in the machines, they'd probably leave their fingerprints on those stamps. And that could potentially lead back to him. So he used to treat the stamps with this special homemade concoction to remove fingerprints. So he is removing every possible trace from these bombs. Okay, so he, they can't go back and narrow it down? Like. At one point he went into public toilets and picked up loose pubes and put them in one of the bombs. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Not his, obviously. Is that where their pubes came from? <laughs> yeah. If that bomb goes off, there's no way they're going to find a fucking... Born pube. Like, what the fuck is his game plan here? He's just a weirdo. A lot of them were like homemade bombs. He'd go out around the area he lived and he'd salvage scrap from junkyards and stuff. That's how he's making his bombs. Right. He wasn't, he was trying not to buy anything. If he used a saw on a bit, he'd then file it down afterwards so they couldn't notice the marks of the saw and say, well, this person bought this particular saw or... Jesus. That's meticulous. Oh, that is meticulous. Almost <laughs> yeah. to a point of, I'm impressed. It will turn out this guy had a lot of time on his hands. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the six year gap as well. Yeah. Tells that he was like almost just doing it for the crack. Maybe he went on a little hiatus then. It was during yeah. the 80s, yeah? 85, did you say? Mm. To 93, yeah. was it? Yeah, until 93. Then after he sends that letter, he's back with a bang. Yeah, within and? the space of. <laughs> Where? Huh? <laughs> Within the space of three days in June that year, he sends two bombs. One to Yale University to a computer scientist and another to the University of California, a geneticist at their home. His house. Yeah, he used to go to reference libraries and look up the addresses of companies and the people who work for them and so on. And he'd find people who worked in specific positions and if he could get their home address. He'd send one. So it was very specific who he was targeting. He must have had an agenda then. 
He did. A very, I'm trying very to specific the agenda. The geneticist. Don't I feel, feel bad like. for not being able to figure out that because there's a lot Who can like for a long time. Who could? When he was posting them to the universities, did he post them to specific classes? Like were they all science classes or was it just like send it to the reception? <laughs> when they were sent specific places, there were usually things like science or technology rooms. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're getting somewhere. He hates science <laughs> and aeroplanes. Which is kind of science. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe I'm clutching Astros. Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's keep going. A lot of the bombs he would send as well were disguised. Uh, the term is double encapsulation. So one was sent in a book with a note saying, I think you'll love this book. And then when the person opened the book, the bomb went off. Or they'd be put in wooden boxes, things like that. And he'd use things like just he'd rob a little electrical component from a torch or a cheap wristwatch and he'd build them with things like that because he didn't want to buy anything that could be traced. Mm. So the bombs in 93 after he comes back from his break. His break. His break. <laughs> his hiatus. So in June 93, there's two bombs. Then there's nothing until December of 94 when a man called Thomas Mosser is killed by a bomb sent to his home in New Jersey. Thomas Mosser was an executive at an advertising company. Which is out of character. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's outside the range we've come to expect, yeah. Yeah, so nothing got to do with science there. Doesn't match the MO. And he was killed, which is yeah. out of character. And then in 95, the president of the California Forestry Association, Gilbert Murray, was also killed. There was a bomb sent to his office. Who was he? He was the president of the California Forestry Association. Is this fella all right? <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> no, the man that's doing it. <laughs> so, your man that's doing it is clearly not. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> Dad, you all right, mate? <laughs> you all right throwing bombs around the whole place? <laughs> Fucking weirdo. Now he has killed people with each of the last two bombs. Yeah. So he's getting better at this from his point of view. Much is more it, effective. Okay. Much more dangerous. So he's now an even bigger problem. Is it the same fella as a copycat killer? Copycat killer. They're pretty sure this is the same person. And yeah, they can tell from the bombs. Okay. There's little things in the bombs. They can tell the same person's making them. A bomb, it seems, uh, is very distinctive. They also thought it might be the Zodiac killer. That was one um, theory they looked at. (coughs) They were trying everything. Who's the Zodiac killer? We'll do that some other time. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So then that's in April 95. In June 95, the New York Times and the Washington Post receive... A package, which is not a bomb. It's a 35,000 word manifesto with a note saying, this is from the Freedom Club, FC. Ah, FC, I was okay. So you're okay. Oh. And if you publish this, the bombs will stop. And if you don't, it'll get much worse. So they publish it? Well, they think long and hard about this because 35,000 words, that's a long document. That's half the length of a book. And to set the precedent that by blowing people up, you get to have your mini book published by the Washington Post and the New York Times. Oh, we thought it meant it was just like published in a newspaper or something like yeah, yeah. a special newspaper. Yeah. That's all right. That's grand. It's like a, Stick a, it in. a whole newspaper dedicated to their or his manifesto. Yeah, just put it in the evening print. Back page job. Yeah. It's tiny print. One of the magazines, you know, when it comes with a magazine, say yeah. this is that nutcase's manifesto. I'd have made the writing really small that you need the magnifying glass for it. Just put it onto like two pages. That's another way of doing it, yeah. You never said which way. Still done it for you. Don't fucking put any more bombs in anyone's post. And stop that, right? That's the deal we made. No bombs. The FBI told them not to publish it. The FBI told them not to? Yeah. Ah, they're trying to keep themselves in a job. Aren't they? Ah, no, come on, don't. We, we, we need, need to, to finish work. this. We need to fucking figure this out. Fucking FBI. Well, the much. FBI were worried that it would inspire copycats. This is a 35,000 word manifesto with some pretty strong opinions about the world. Did the state why he was doing it in the manifesto? Yes. And the FBI are saying, well, like, let's not make this guy into some kind of hero, leader, a hero to some people. Yeah, let's not spread his ideas. Let's not reward him for bombing people. Kind of reminds me of the Joker in a little way. like Yeah, evil genius. Could have been some inspiration there for the Joker, yeah. More like Heath Ledger's, like the way he, he like burnt the money the profit he made and stuff like that and he just mm. wanted like to watch the world born yeah 
while the New York Times and the Washington Post wrestled with the ethical dilemma, let's say, of publishing it, the publisher of Penthouse, the porno magazine, yeah, they said, we'll publish it. What and the, we'll, oh. They said, we'll publish it, no no worries, and we'll give him a monthly column. <laughs> a monthly column? Give him a job? Why? Oh my God. So what happened? Did they publish it? I kind of admire it a little bit. <laughs> the fact that Penthouse wanted to publish it though, why? Oh, it would have been hot shit. People would have wanted to read that manifesto. But reading it in the pit, <laughs> read the manifesto and have a little Tom Tank. <laughs> Eventually they decide, they do, they talk to the FBI and the Department of Justice and they say, okay, we'll publish this. They went halves on the cost. Who who went halves on the cost? Washington Post and, and New, New York, York Times. Times? Yeah. Not Penthouse. They didn't get a look in. Penthouse were cut out of the operation. Fucking poor Penthouse, man. I feel bad for them. <laughs> Banger of order. So, they published the manifesto. The manifesto is called Industrial Society and Its Future. Say that again, sorry, from, from the top because I was just... Sorry, sorry, no, sorry. <laughs> I am this. Let's go back to April uh, 1967. <laughs> Can we go back like an hour and a half ago? <laughs> it was all there today, all 35,000 words of the Unabomber's message to America. Unabomber's manifesto was published by the Washington Post and the New York Times. The manifesto is called Industrial Society and Its Future. Did he come up with that name? Or did, did, did he did, yeah. New York Times watched it. Okay, he did. I'll give you the first, the first full paragraph for the introduction. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. Well, he wasn't wrong. What did I say to you before we started this? <laughs> He'd love it. <laughs> but he wasn't, was he? Like that's, I mean, that stands up now more so. It's if the way he went about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Are you reading it all? No, I'm not reading the whole thing. I can do that. If, you can do that if you want. Like, if you want to do that, you can do it. We'll have a separate get a, order episode. A few, order an audio book. Order a few five lamps in there, and we get through the whole thing. <laughs> so, there's 232 numbered paragraphs with notes. He says organized modern society forces people to behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior. He says humans are living isolated and unfulfilling lives all because of the influence of technology on our modern society. So technology, he claims, has eroded all individual liberty. It's basically turned all humans into nothing more than cogs in a giant machine. And the longer we live with the machine, the more impossible it will become to break free. And he says the only way to break free is through a revolution that will collapse modern society. Basically, the manifesto argues that Humanity needs to return to a society similar to agricultural pre-industrial revolution. Yeah, but that, see, I can't get behind that. I can't get behind that. Like that's not that. That was no quality of life. He says things like technology is brought about supposedly because it will make life better, but it just makes us prisoners of that technology. One of the examples he uses is cars. Obviously, the idea within cars is it will help humans get around, and it has all these other benefits of moving goods and people. Why does he feel like it's destroying the environment? Like No, he feels like the car comes in like then you redesign towns and cities to suit, suit the, car the car and then you have to have a car and you oh, basically become a prisoner of technology. He, he, he was a, a whack job. <laughs> like proper now. No, like, literally like from the first couple of lines in that manifesto he's like certified whack job. Like I don't think so. I think most people would share the sentiment there. But in the sense that he went and made bombs. Well, that's over. crazy. But he didn't say that in the first few, yeah. few lines. So he does his intro where he outlines the general problem that, you know, technology and industrial advancements 
are bad for humanity. Then he goes on to what if artificial intelligence was to take over. He had a bit in it saying that. Yeah. Paragraph 172 of the manifesto. First, let us postulate that the computer scientists succeed in developing intelligent machines that can do all things better than human beings can do them. And they have. It is impossible to guess how such machines might behave. We, he keeps saying we as well, this Freedom Club. That's just oh, him. Oh, okay. That's I just him. Like, <laughs> yeah. I thought he meant the it's collective like, of humanity. No, no. Yeah. He, he's like, he was trying to give the impression that this was a whole movement. That, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so he's like, oh, like we're a big group, like, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, we're, we're all fucking making bombs. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think that, like, I mean, opi- we, we, we think, we think. It's like his opinion is, is a shared opinion between like everyone. Yeah. Fucking idiot. <laughs> so he says, it's impossible to guess how machines might behave. We only point out that the fate of the human race would be at the mercy of the machines. It might be argued that the human race would never be foolish enough to hand over power to the machines. But what he says might happen is that the human race might permit itself to drift into a position of such dependence on the machines that it would have no practical choice but to accept all of the machines' decisions. So he's basically saying technology will get to the point that we won't even realise we have become the hostages of technology. And he finishes off this point saying, a stage may be reached at which the decisions necessary to keep the system running will be so complex that human beings will be incapable of making them intelligently. At that stage, the machines will be in effective control. People won't be able to just turn the machine off because they will be so dependent on them that turning them off would amount to suicide. (laughs) Joe... I'm like, he has a point. He has a point. I don't know how... Do you like him? No, I don't know. Like, his manifesto has a point, especially that stuff there about AI and and reading it now in this day and age. But I don't know how that equates to let's bomb people. Like, (laughs) There's also, I should say, there's also stuff like beyond all of the discussion he has about the impact of technology and, you know, his vision for how a technology-free world could be. There's a lot of stuff that's very political uh, and he's got a lot of hatred for, as he calls them, leftists. So first of all, here's how he categorizes. I mean, he has a lot of detailed descriptions uh, about what a leftist is and and isn't and all that. But here's one that kind of sums it up. Here's how he categorizes uh, who he's referring to when he says leftists. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. And he goes on to say, leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. I should say, he wasn't necessarily you know, right-wing either. He wrote this about conservatives or Republicans. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently, it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well. And that such rapid change inevitably breaks down traditional values. Him getting on the news, like the article out there, like is very similar to like venting on Twitter. Like if you have them beliefs, you go to Twitter under like unknown one two three. Like do you, yeah, know you don't need to blow where, anyone up to have yeah yeah the world hear it now. Yeah, exactly. Like so, he he needed to make bombs for him to be heard. Like yeah, like it really just sounds like someone on Twitter just spamming the fuck out of everyone. Like <laughs> a troll, he's like just a troll. absolute troll. Like that just made bombs to be heard. Yeah, fucking arsehole. The reaction that the Unabomber's manifesto made a lot more sense than the Unabomber's methods. Yeah. That's pretty common. Okay, so I'm not a weirdo for feeling that way. No, no. A lot of people, whatever about the political stuff, a lot of people do treat it as, you know, a a serious or semi-serious piece of political writing or philosophy or whatever you want. And, you know, while you'd probably struggle to find a lot of people who'd agree with a lot and certainly wouldn't agree with the methods but even with the manifesto and the idea that you go back to a pre-industrial revolution era you know you're not going to find a huge amount of adherence to that but you probably find a lot more people who would agree somewhat with the sentiment you know that humanity might have become too dependent on technology and has let technology shape our world too much his head must have been really messed up to write that whole like that that's all from his head like 
there, yeah, there's that, this, this fella had an interest in back fucking, then. Yeah, yeah. But where I find interesting is the internet wasn't a thing back then, so it's not like, like he was in an echo would, chamber or yeah, in a telegram group or getting all this. I'm like, what's cooking up all that in his head? Where's he getting all that yeah, mad yeah. information from? That's the weird thing, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever hear the Luddites? Do you ever hear someone called a Luddite? No. If you say, I don't like smartphones because they ruin social interactions and all that. Someone might say, ah, oh, you're a Luddite, you know. You don't like new technology. Okay. Go back to your Nokia 3210. So the Luddites were people at the Industrial Revolution. They owned shops that produced cloth and things for making clothes. The factories came in and they could obviously do this much cheaper and without employing pe- as many people. And so the Luddites were a group who went around smashing up the machines for making the cloth. And this was like the 18th century. So that became kind of a term for people who hate technological advances and how it will change their world. So there is a whole kind of history of people thinking this way, obviously. But a lot of people say, yeah, you look at his stuff now and he wasn't completely crazy in everything he said. There is stuff in there that is completely crazy. And what he, the way he went about it is completely crazy. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So the manifesto, he sends this out with all its ideas. The FBI obviously are reading it. And there's a young agent at the FBI called James Fitzgerald. This was his first time he was put on a case as what they call a profiler. And all of a sudden now I'm looking at this thing and I'm reading it two times, three times, four times. It's a very dense document. But before too long, I'm picking up on some unusual language characteristics, like some archaic terms like um, broad and chick to denote women. Okay, what does he mean by that? Uh, he uses the word Negro to refer to African Americans. And this is 1995. And these words were, it's almost like, you know, Frank Sinatra language or something you'd hear from a 50s movie or something. That helped me sort of age the author to begin with. Ah, so I got this broad yeah. down on it. <laughs> That's one of the points he made. Besides all that stuff about artificial intelligence, he's like, oh, why can't we say broad and chick anymore? Oh, that's God. in there too. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. So the fella reading this goes, okay, that's language from someone who's older. We were looking for someone younger. Mm-hmm. So, and they start looking at the different words he used in the manifesto and start going, okay, maybe we've been thinking about this differently. They notice one or two words that will be more used in the Chicago area. And they go, okay, maybe we go back there to the site of the first, maybe that's where he grew up. Little things like this. When the manifesto is published, they have a a tip line, which gets like somewhere around 50,000 tips from people who are ringing in to say, oh, this is, you know, this is Bill down the road, or this is my cousin Frank, Mm. or, you know. I kind of think that he's like one of them fellas that like used a knickknack on his gaff when you were younger. And he's like, hey, fuck off, like, Tommy, you can fucking drink me cans, fuck off. <laughs> like, and then he just like went off on one and just like started putting all of his knickknack energy into that. <laughs> it's knickknack energy. <laughs> See, they're fucking kids and they fucking phones and they fancy gadgets. <laughs> yeah, like, it just seems like that. They're fucking up the whole bloody world. I'm going to start making f- fucking roads different. What do you like with your blade and Facebooks and Holding on to poles. Holding on to poles trying to swing these at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like, yeah, you can't even hit me. <laughs> you bollocks. Oh, fuck. And he has a Jack Russell called uh, Spa. Little Jacker. He goes, fucking kill ya. Huss, huss. <laughs> Get him. And he doesn't eat much. He just goes to the shop for dog food. But the dog's a little fat fuck as well because he just eats oh, leftover yeah, chippers yeah. and yeah. pizzas. While he's like in the kitchen trying to make a bomb. <laughs> Go on, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Right. Okay, so of all these 50, it was 53,000 people called up the hotline. The hotline was 1-800-701-BOMB. <laughs> of the 53,000, one of these was a woman called Linda Patrick. She was a professor of philosophy. Her husband was a man called David Kaczynski. She read the manifesto and she said to David, I was reading something and I think they had to read it online. So they actually had to go to her university to read it online. Like that's, remember how far back we are with technology. It's a long time ago. Anyway, they sit down, they start reading the manifesto and David goes, oh shit. You know, it actually began with my wife, Linda. And interestingly enough, she had never met Ted, but she knew that Ted had this kind of phobia about technology 
she knew he was estranged from the family, mm -hmm. but I had never seen Ted violent. But she did at that point say, look, the Unabomber has sent this manifesto to the Washington Post. Would you read it and tell me what you think? So I thought I'd read that thing. I'd tell her it's not Ted. And uh, instead, as I began to read it, I realized that the voice there was so much like Ted's. There was a particular phrase where he had called modern philosophers cool-headed logicians. Mm -hmm. And I had recalled a similar phrase in a letter he had once sent me. It sounded exactly like what he had been hearing from his brother Ted, his genius brother, who had IQ of 160-odd. He had been accepted to Harvard on a full scholarship at the age of 16. By the age of 25, he was the youngest professor in the history of the University of Berkeley. He taught mathematics. Brilliant. Genius. For no good reason, he just quit that job. And a few years later, moved out to the mountains in Montana and built a shack. And David had kind of lost touch with him because Ted kept going on about how technology was ruining life. And they read this manifesto and he went, oh no. That's how he found him. Gone off the deep end. My brother's the Unabomber. Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't entirely sure, but he got a sinking feeling. Yeah, like... He just loves There's other people out there that would probably have the same beliefs as his brother. So we can't really just for sure say, yeah. well, surely by looking at the, the warden of it, he'd be like, yeah, that's my brother. I remember that from birthday cards. His, his wife read it and was like, oh, you know your brother that keeps calling me broad and chick? I think he's the Unabomber. <laughs> so David had a letter his brother had written. It was like an essay he'd written years ago. It was very similar to the manifesto. And after thinking this over long and hard, he went to the FBI and handed them. And so the profiler who'd been looking at the manifesto looked at this and went, either this is an excellent fake or this is the guy. So Ted Kaczynski, David's brother, child prodigy, goes to Harvard age 16. Supposedly a good family life, but there was one thing when he was nine months old, he had a skin condition and the doctors isolated him for 10 days. And his mother in the years to come would say she felt that the child they got back was never the same. There was something different about him. I mean... That's obviously extremely traumatic for anyone, child that age in particular. Ten-year-old? Nine newborn. months old. Newborn. Well, not newborn, but like... Months old? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, his mom thinks it had a lasting impact on him. For sure. There was other things like then, he didn't mix with people. That's what people would say later on when he was a university professor. He wasn't very sociable, all that kind of stuff, unsurprisingly. He went to work for his brother David in a factory. David had to fire him because he was sexually harassing a woman who worked there writing like lewd notes and stuff on the, the wall in the, the factory and uh -huh. while he was in Harvard there was an experience he had that some people think may have had a huge bearing on what he was later become. So while he was at Harvard there was a psychologist there called Henry Murray and he was running a study called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. They put out a notice for students if they want to come along and, and take part and they'd be paid a bit of money. And the idea was the students would write an essay. As they were told, you'll write an essay about your outlook on life or your beliefs and then you'll sit down and discuss those ideas with someone. And they went, okay, fair enough. They wrote this and then they were brought into a bare white room with very bright lights and a one-way mirror and someone would come in. It turned out it was a lawyer, so someone very good at arguing. And they just abused them, tore apart their whole worldview, mocked them relentlessly. Like really, really abusive and horrible. Because they wanted to test how people reacted to stress and to being humiliated. So they were trying to study how people respond to just being treated like absolute shit. And you doing that to him, of all people? As <laughs> fuck you want to do that to? And this is a serious theory that the studies at Harvard changed him fundamentally. Cheers. Yeah. Was this a constant practice? Like, or was this just like a one-off kind of trial? So these experiments went on for three years. So every single week he'd go in and be verbally abused and humiliated. Uh, Jesus. Once a week? Yeah, once a week for three years. When he would eventually get to trial, his lawyers would say that this Insanity, was like a mind-altering experience. A lot of the other people who were in the study came out later on and said, yeah, it completely messed me up as well. Jesus, they must have really went fucking in on them. Yeah, you'd never be allowed to do it now. It'd That's be completely insane. unethical to do it. Like clockwork orange. Not as extreme, but yeah, yeah. a similar idea, yeah. yeah. Like, what would he try, like, what would he going to do with that information? Like, what was the point of that study? Such a ridiculous study. Like, what's the end goal? To understand what? 
how people react when they're getting bullied. And, and then I'm like, oh, that. so that's how they react. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's do a study to see how people react when I box them in the face. It's almost like they're just bored and they're like, let's just fucking make people guinea pigs for yeah. the crack. There were some people who claim, although I don't know how much there is basis on, that it was somehow linked to the Project MK Ultra. Oh, was yeah. the CIA we have to get experiments to around mind control. I don't know anything about that. Kaczynski himself says, like, you know, he resented the whole thing. He hated it, but he didn't think it changed him. So after David tips them off, they say, right, this is worth looking at. So they start doing a stakeout on the cabin. How did he yeah. find them in the cabin? Oh, David said, this is where you'll find them. But did David know where he was then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, he knew where he lived and he would send them letters even though Ted had said to him, I don't want to read your letters, but David would send them letters from time to time. They'd completely fallen out. Ted had said to him, basically, unless one of our, unless someone has died, that kind of seriousness, mm. I'm not going to open your letter. But if you underline the stamp, I'll know that that's what's inside there and I will open that letter. But if you ever abuse that, I'll never open one of your letters again. Yeah. He was a particular fella, obviously. Mm. So he said, that's probably where he is now. Then, yeah, they kind of hung around the mountains for a while watching them, trying to make sure they could get enough evidence to get a search warrant. Then they found out a TV channel had been tipped off. Somebody working in the investigation had told them that they think they've finally found the Unabomber. So they were like, we're going to run a story on this. They gave them the heads up and this, unless you're doing something the next few days. So they had to rush it through the judge and the two FBI agents and the forestry police agent they head up. They were disguised as mining officials this guy, the Forest Service Ranger, he actually knew Ted Kaczynski, so they knew he'd recognise his voice. So Kaczynski opens the door a tiny bit and looks out, and they say, just need to chat to you for a second. So he goes in, Kaczynski does, puts his coat on, steps out. As he does, the FBI officials grab him, throw him to the ground. The FBI agents hunting for the deadly Unabomber have detained a Montana man described as a hermit. A neighbor identified him as Theodore Kaczynski. He's being held in custody in Lincoln, Montana. He's a bearded man who has been living for years uh, in a cabin in Lincoln, Montana. One law enforcement official told me, we don't know if we have the right guy. That's why we needed to search his place to find out. The neighbor identified or described Kaczynski as five foot nine with scraggly hair, often wearing a straw hat, uh, having no automobile and riding a bicycle into the town of Lincoln nearby to get his groceries. There are unconfirmed reports that his own family turned him in. Law enforcement officials say they will neither confirm nor deny those reports. We do expect to get more information tomorrow. When they went into the cabin, they found the shelves were crammed with baby food jars and baking soda cans that were marked with the chemical names of different types of explosives. Then there was a Quaker oats like porridge box and 23 bomb igniters were in there. There was a copy of the manifesto, obviously. And then there was handwritten notes and journals and also about his ideology and his plan for future attacks and everything. So mm. once they were in the cabin, they were pretty Was there sure. anything about what FC standard for? Freedom. Freedom Club, Club. was what. Freedom yeah, Club. So it was a club. Oh, right. He, uh, club of one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a big fucking club, man. <laughs> the Freedom Club. It's like a child. Like he's such it's a like, genius, and then a, he comes up with such a childish. He's just a spoiled brat. Like he's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I have a big, huge club. This and we all bomb. Like, nah, it's just you, man. He has other club members, but you wouldn't know them. Yeah, you wouldn't know them. It's a name, Sarah. I kissed the I kissed <laughs> the girl on, on holidays. She's from uh, Cork. Yeah, well, what's her name? Uh, didn't get on her because she just like, kissed and then we yeah, just like, did. You little fridgey, you didn't kiss her. I did. You didn't, you little just, liar. Like, and then like, we, uh, we just like, she left then and then it was like special. Liar, yeah. My mate was there and he said that you were in your bedroom the whole day. That's pretty much what he, he's like. Yeah. Yeah, he was arrested. He's taken to court. He tried to fire all his lawyers. His lawyers tried to argue he was a madman. The prosecution tried to argue he was sane. And he was sentenced to it was four life sentences he looks like Charles Manson mad people always grow beards he and long hair looks like you might you'd expect it um, feels like the type of person that w would probably like convert a lot of people to his own beliefs and then start a cult there's a lot of crazy people in America like there's insane people that just like worship serial killers yeah and like love that kind of thing that would be reading that manifesto when I came out and being like in love with him do you know that way? Yeah. In 2011, 
there was a seemingly a terror group targeting university professors in Mexico and they were considered to be a Unabomber copycat group. Nanotechnology researchers were the people being targeted. Oh, shit. What do they know? What do they know? Nothing. It's insane. So he is still in prison today. Do you remember in the prison episode we talked about the, the prison, the Supermax prison, the Alcatraz of the Rockies? Yeah. That's where he is. He's there now. He's there now. Stop. Him and El Chapo. With El Chapo. Well, I mean, it being that prison, they're not spending a lot of time together. But yeah, they're both in, in the same prison. That's like where super villains are made. That's mm. It's like Arkham Asylum. Yeah, that's <laughs> Arkham Asylum. 100% is. Y- you can write to him. Can you? Yeah. Now, why'd you tell me that? Yeah. Now, we just want to do that. You fucking wanted to say that. You? <laughs> You're like, I can't wait to tell him you can write to him. <laughs> he writes back to a lot of people, apparently. Does he? Yeah, he's pen pals with a lot of people. For the podcast, you should like write my letter saying you've Big Eja doing that. If you tell him you're in the media, though, he won't write back to you. Hi, I'm not in the media. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I don't have a podcast. (laughs) Let's not forget he killed three people. Exactly. Yeah, no, psycho. That's why why I said, like, write my name and saying, you big fucking Eja, and then fuck off. (laughs) Don't do that. Why'd you do that? But I think to write to the Unabomber, like he's a psycho, and you don't get to have a conversation with a psycho very often, or ever. So you would be intrigued to send him a letter mm. wouldn't you I wouldn't even send him a letter do you know what I'm not even going to <laughs> well I mean I know we, yeah we're I all fascinated by evil and he's he's yeah. a particularly interesting example because of his philosophy behind what he was doing and the way he went about things and how he was the definition of an evil genius like he's a very interesting character so I understand when people would want to no more chat to him yeah how old is he now uh about 80 on Netflix, there's called Manhunt. Pretty good. It's about the FBI mission to track him down. Documentary, is it? No, it's serious fiction. Um, then there's a podcast called Project Unibomb podcast series, which is very good. And the first episode is all about the manifesto and they go to the place where all that stuff is held and they sit down and go through the boxes of his writings and all. Like, I feel like his cabin should be turned into a museum or something now. It's kept in a museum. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Ah, no way. That's class. I want to go there. <laughs> it was taken down and moved and it's in the the museum in Washington, which is a museum of historically like big news stories, artifacts yeah. from big news stories through American history. I mean, it's significant. It's just really recent. The thing about history is how much time has to go by before you can kind of just look at it from a... Like, that's mad that that happened, that kind of thing. Yeah. A hundred years. Well, clearly, like, well, now if the Unabomber's gaff yeah. is in a fucking museum in Washington, a hundred years doesn't seem to be the, the yeah. barometer. Well, I suppose, to be honest with you, if you want to go by correct terms, history was yesterday. Correct, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Kaczynski's house was a shed. And Can you I pay it? about two grand a month for it in Ireland. No bed. No. Didn't have a bed. Should have went to Isk. <laughs> so far life life terms and he's 80. Do you know what was interesting? I seen like this article and it was like the last mail requests of notorious serial killers. And it was like someone was like chocolate brownies and KFC. Yeah, stuff like that. And yeah, some mad stuff. What would your last mail be? Um, Cab and there. No, Subway, man. <laughs> Italian BMT, oh, Southwest sauce, pickles, jalapeno, red onion, <laughs> lettuce, actually uh, American cheese and extra Southwest toasted. Thank you. Tangy cheese Dorito <laughs> and a Pepsi Max. Oh my God. <laughs> You've thought about this. Yeah. That's just my order every time. <laughs> you just come on to, uh, what do you want for your last meal? Don't worry about it. I'll just come on to just eat and order the last thing. <laughs> Reorder. Anyway, there you go. That's the story of the Unabomber. That's mad, isn't it? Like, it is. I'm quite happy that you presented that to us today, I have to say. I'm glad I, I was able to hold your attention because that was a long one. Thank you, Da. Um, <laughs> thanks for doing the research and thanks for Say looking. thanks, Da. Thanks, Da. <laughs> we'll leave it on this one sick bastard. A very sick bastard. Yeah. An interesting sick bastard, though. Um, I'd just say sick bastard. Netflix thought he was interesting enough to make a whole series about him. Uh, Netflix think everyone is interesting <laughs> to make a series. They made one on <laughs> fucking Jeffrey Dahmer. He's also a very interesting yeah, person. I, I did quite enjoy that, to be fair. <laughs> Make more of them, Netflix. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. That's a that's another episode in the bag. My brain is a little larger and a little bit more informed now that I know 
who the Unabomber is. Mm. I'm quite happy that when I started this podcast, I very much knew fuck all about the world. And as the weeks go on, I feel like I'm getting more intelligent and I'm soaking it all in like a fucking SpongeBob SquarePants. SquarePants. Right, well, there you go. That's it for this episode of Starla. If you have any questions or feedback or anything that you want to get over to us, send it to Starla at goloudnow.com. We read out some listener questions on the bonus episode of the podcast, which is... Or you can send it to 90555-BOMB. BOMB. The BOMB. (laughs) And... We'll see you next Wednesday. Starlet is a Go Loud original podcast, proudly sponsored by the Five Lamps Beer from Our Hair. You have to say the beer from Our Hair. I just want to. Yeah, it makes sense. I think we should definitely keep that. And also visit drinkaware.ie to know all about responsible drinking. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think I'm going to do that now just Mm -hmm. so I can think about it and obviously go and have a can and make a responsible a decision point, yeah. and have a, a few drinks or five yeah. lamps well, you can, you can visit that site anytime you want anytime I'll see you later bye